listening to Dedication Point, an oral history of the Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. This oral history project was produced by the Birds of Prey NCA Partnership, working in close collaboration with the Bureau of Land Management, the Wild Lens Collective, and the Peregrine Fund's Archives of Falconry. The series will feature 20 interviews conducted with key figures in the history of the Snake River Canyon region. This is the 10th interview that we've released as a part of this series. Clive Strong is a former Deputy Attorney General for the state of Idaho, but he's perhaps best known for his role in negotiating the Swan Falls Agreement. The Swan Falls Agreement was the result of a decades-long controversy over water rights in the Snake River. It had far-reaching implications for water law and water rights issues across the U.S., but it also had a significant impact on the debate over the establishment of protection for the Snake River Canyon. Swan Falls Dam, the hydropower generation facility at the heart of this controversy, is located within the Snake River Canyon National Conservation Area. This means that for a period of time in the early 1980s, the Snake River Canyon was at the epicenter of a national debate over water rights, and Clive Strong sat at the center of that debate. Good morning. My name is Clive Strong. I was formerly a Deputy Attorney General for the Office of the Idaho Attorney General. Served as the Chief of the Natural Resource Division for 34 years. Native Idahoan, grew up in Wendell, Idaho, just above the Thousand Springs area. I want to jump right into this whole issue that we've been talking about regarding Swan Falls Dam, initial lawsuit that led to what became the Swan Falls Agreement. To start us off, I'm curious about two things. Like, one, what was the inciting incident? And then two, like, at what point did you get involved in this? Well, the incident that caused the Swan Falls controversy to come to fruition was Idaho Power Company's intent to go forward and construct the Pioneer Power Plant, which was going to be a coal-fired power plant outside of Boise. And there was concerns about the environmental consequences, particularly air quality issues that would arise from construction of that plant. And so a coalition of ranchers and environmental interests brought an action before the Public Utility Commission, asking the Public Utility Commission to first not recognize or allow to go forward the Pioneer plant, but alternatively saying that if the Pioneer plant was brought into what's called the rate base for the company, the company should not be able to rate base the Swan Falls Dam because the Swan Falls Dam, which was constructed back in the early 1900s, had water rights for 8,400 CFS. And the company had failed, at least in the allegations in the petition, had failed to protect that water right, which meant ratepayers weren't getting the benefit from generation of power at Swan Falls. What had happened over time was the development of groundwater pumping on the eastern state plain aquifer that caused the spring flows to decline in the Thousand Springs reach. The flows had depleted down to about 4,500 CFS, which was low during the summertime. The failure to protect the water right was the basis for the allegation that they shouldn't be able to rate-base the Swan Falls power plant. Nobody was paying attention to the fact that, that there wasn't this existing right that Idaho Power had for power generation on Swan Falls Dam, right? Mm, Am I understanding correct. that That's correctly? Correct. Not that they hadn't paid attention to it. 
In order to understand Swan Falls controversy, you have to go clear back to statehood. When they were developing the Constitution for the state of Idaho, one provision that was in the, inserted in the Constitution was Article 15, which deals with water rights. And the state adopted what's called the Prior Appropriation Doctrine. But as they were debating that issue in the Constitutional Convention, a concern arose because about that time, hydropower was beginning to become a viable option. And the concern was that if hydropower water rights were able to develop a water right under the prior appropriation doctrine, they would take and control the entirety of the river. And so there was this debate about whether hydropower water rights should be subordinated. They didn't ultimately resolve that issue in the convention. And then when we moved forward to about 1919, there was a severe drought in the Upper Snake River Basin. And that was the same time we'd been developing the storage projects above Milner Dam, which were causing further depletions in the flows below that area. And as the dam was getting constructed, we came back to this issue of whether water rights for hydropower should be subordinated, and that became a contested issue uh, affecting the development of American Falls Dam. American Falls Dam's water rights were subordinated through an agreement with the federal government. And about that same time, then, Washington and Oregon were contemplating development of hydropower facilities below or in the Hills Canyon reach, and the concern was that if those projects went forward, that it would then preclude future development in Idaho. And so there was a, an amendment made to the Constitution, Article 15, Section 3 in 1927, that provided that hydropower water rights, unlike other water rights, could be conditioned to protect future uses. So all of that was kind of in the background. And then what we were doing before 1950 was doing gravity irrigation. And so you diverted large amounts of water across the eastern Snake Plain aquifer, and we increased the flow in the aquifer or the groundwater level in the aquifer by 60 feet across an 11,000 square mile area, which then increased the flows at Thousand Springs from about 4,200 CFS to over 6,000 CFS. And then in the 1950s, the possibility for groundwater pumping became possible. And so then we began pumping out of the aquifer and caused the flows in the Snake River to decrease at the Thousand Springs area and consequently at Swan Falls as well. And so those declining flows were really what precipitated the conflict at Swan Falls. As, as those flows declined, there was less opportunity for generation of power. Then if you move forward to 1970, I think it was 1974, California entered the fray looking at the Snake River as a possible source for exportation of water to Southern California. And that precipitated Governor Smiley to call for a special session of the legislature and a constitutional amendment which created the Idaho Water Resource Board. The Water Resource Board then developed a state water plan, idea being that if we were to protect ourselves against out-of-state diversions, we needed to show that the water supply was fully developed. And as part of the state water plan, then there was a proposal made for a joint effort by Idaho Power Company in the state to enter into what's called the Swan Falls Guffey Project. The idea would have been to rebuild the Swan Falls Dam to a much higher capacity. That created a great deal of controversy in the state as that state water plan was coming forward. And then the Pioneer plant kind of collided with both the enactment of the state water plan and this development of the Eastern St. Plain Aquifer. And so when those two things collided, that precipitated the lawsuit, which then led to the Swan Falls controversy. Really, it, it sounds like the Swan Falls Agreement was an extension of 
this issue that had been going on for a long, long time that started with statehood, right? Absolutely. Um, this is with water development, we tend to think of it or the way it's developed over time is in a single dimension. We look at what the current water need is and meet that need. But anytime you do water development, there's always the unintended consequences from that. So the idea of developing the Eastern Snake Plain Aquifer, let me put another little caveat in there. There was a study done in 1920. It was called a comprehensive plan, essentially, for the Upper Snake River Basin. And the way it was developed was with the Bureau of Reclamation, the state engineer, and two of the canal companies, Northside and Twin Falls Canal Company representatives, that developed this plan on how we were going to optimize the use of the water resources of the Upper Snake River Basin. And what that plan called for was to develop all of the water from what's called Milner Dam, which is just outside of Twin Falls, near the Kimberley area. We were going to divert all of the water out of the Snake River and essentially reduce the river to zero flow. Then that water would be diverted across the plain. As I described before, with that water in there, a large part of that water then seeps back into the aquifer, increasing the spring flow. So essentially what we did is we re-diverted the Snake River from the main channel running it through the aquifer, increasing the spring flows. At the time that that was being done, this whole issue of subordination of water rights was at, at the forefront. And this report called for the subordination of all hydropower water rights. And the company agreed to that because at the time, the company's primary market was to agriculture. So by being able to market the water to agriculture, they saw opportunity for further development in the company's perspective. And so essentially what the report did was we're going to divide the river, make a two-river policy. Upper Snake River is going to be fully developed. The company will rely on the spring flows because at that time we didn't have the ability to, with high lift pumping, to take the water out. So the thought was we'll develop most of our hydropower in this reach below Milner and do all of the agricultural development above Milner. And it was nobody foresaw until 1950, this advent of high lift pumping or, uh, or cap capacity to do high lift pumping out of the aquifer. And once that happened, it undermined the central principle of that plan that had been developed back in 1920. But still, it was in, in the company's interest and the state's interest and the water user's interest, kind of symbiotic relationship to continue that development. And so the company, viewing its ability to rate base, would always look for a new opportunity for development. But as this water supply got fully developed and we move into the 70s, that's when the environmental issues come into play and our view of how to develop the river shifts. Right. Fascinating. So it's like this new technology that came into play in the 1950s totally changed the whole system. Right? whole dynamic and, of how we yeah. thought about the development of the river. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't that people didn't recognize it, but from an economic standpoint, we're coming back from World War II. We're trying to find places for the greatest generation to develop. Agriculture is still king at that point in time. And so it was more important to the public at that time that we develop it. We hadn't developed the environmental ethic that is now present in a lot of our water development. So the consequence was, is we willingly knew that even though the spring flows would go down, that we would move forward with that development because it was in the state's interest from an economic standpoint. Right. I wonder where the Desert Land Entry Act comes into play in that, in the 1950s, right? Was the act a product of that technology? How were those things interacting, right? Was it necessary? Right. Did that create the opportunity to... Well, the Desert Land Entry Act was actually enacted back in the 1800s, okay. so it goes back a long ways. But the technology made it feasible to do high lift pumping out of the river up over onto the plains above Hagerman in the, what's called the Bell Rapids area and Grindstone Butte area around Glens Ferry. 
And so we had some very high lift pumping that was occurring out of the river, as well as development of the aquifer, the top of the eastern St. Plain aquifer. Gotcha. So as the technology created the opportunity for to potentially irrigate a much larger area Correct. than would have even been technically feasible previous, mm-hmm. right? And in fact, the company was a very big proponent of it, and, and some of the company officers actually owned some of the lands that were where the high lift pumping was occurring over in the Bell Rapids area. Hmm. Interesting. At what point in this history, the history that you laid out about the development of all these different rules regarding water rights, at what stage in that history were we at when the dam was actually constructed, right? Because there was this Mm. period of like really, really intensive dam construction. It makes me wonder, was that being done with this existing structure of water law specifically in mind? It was. If you look back, my recollection is the Swan Falls Dam is basically constructed between 1901 and 1917. It started out originally to provide electricity for the mines in Silver City. That was what it was originally proposed for. And uh, the the trade dollar uh, company was financially insolvent. And so about 1910 to 1920, Idaho Power Company began to consolidate all of these smaller dams along the river. So it owned uh, the American Falls site for the hydropower generation at Swan Falls, Twin Falls Dam. Let me see what other ones were in place at that time. Shoshone Falls. Those are the bunch of smaller hydro plants that they consolidated together. The big dam building era began really in the 40s and through the 50s. Um, we had the Hell's Canyon controversy that occurred in the late 40s. And in fact, that kind of plays into the story as well because Senator Jordan, or actually Governor Jordan at that point in time, was asked to support Idaho Power Company's construction of the Hell's Canyon proposal. The United States government had uh, proposed a high Hell's Canyon dam, which would have created a massive amount of a large storage project and water for uh, western Idaho. And Idaho Power Company had a very aggressive campaign against that, arguing that if the federal government developed the hydropower, it would take the water rights of the farmers from them. And that was their big campaign. And they said, if we are granted the right to construct the three smaller Hell's Canyon projects, which were Hell's Canyon, Oxbow, and Brownlee, that they promised the state and irrigators that they would never assert their rights against upstream development. That's really a central part of uh, Swan Falls controversy because there was this belief that the company had agreed to that. In fact, Governor Jordan at the time made that a condition of his support for Idaho Park Company's project is the company's commitment to the state, the company would never assert its rights against upstream development. Huh. So that means there were actually like two conflicting things going on, right? Like this agreement related to what was going on in Hell's Canyon, the the dam construction Mm -hmm. there, and the previous agreement to maintain a certain amount of water flowing through Swan Falls Dam to generate hydro, right? Well, there hadn't been a commitment to Okay, so that hadn't happened no, yet. No, that hadn't. Okay. That, that comes with the Swan Falls Agreement. Okay. In fact, what happened with Hell's Canyon was a belief, unfortunately it wasn't documented the way it should have been, but it was a belief that the company had voluntarily subordinated all of its hydropower water rights to upstream development. I see. And one of the, one of the other things that uh, Governor Jordan uh, conditioned it on was that at the same time that the Hell's Canyon controversy is going forward, the C.J. Strike Dam just south of Glens Ferry was being constructed. And he insisted that the company include 
in the water right for CJ Strike a provision subordinating its uh, the water rights for that facility for all upstream consumptive use. So what you have is a CJ Strike is documented as being subordinated. The Hell's Canyon Company water rights license was subordinated. So there was a belief, and Swan Falls is in the middle, that Swan Falls was likewise subordinated because it was bracketed by these facilities that had subordinated water rights. And unfortunately, that was never documented. And that was that failure to document that was what opponents to the Pioneer plant used as a basis for arguing against a rate basing uh, the Swan Falls power plant. Right. So that brings us up to the point at which this controversy is is beginning, right? Mm-hmm. Um, at what point did you get involved? I got involved in uh, 1983. Jim Jones had been elected attorney general, and he hired me. Uh, I was one of his first hires in the administration. Shortly after he became attorney general, the Idaho Supreme Court issued a decision called Idaho Power Company versus State of Idaho in which reversed a district court judge Walters' decision. Walters had ruled that the company had subordinated its water rights at Swan Falls and so therefore uh, threw out basically the environmental and uh, opponent's uh, case. When it got to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court reversed and said no, that um, the argument that the company had subordinated its water rights through the uh, FERC license, the Federal Power Act license, only applied to Hills Canyon, and then remanded the case back to determine whether the company had otherwise forfeited its water rights at Swan Falls through um, equitable doctrines called uh, abandonment or forfeiture, latches kind of issues. And that's when I entered, is that at that point in time, Attorney General Jones hired me and uh, put me in lead of trying to deal with that issue. Mm -hmm. It's like flip-flopping, right? Do they have these water rights? Do they not have these water rights? And it's interesting, it was decided one way and then reversed by the Idaho State Supreme Court. I guess I'm curious, you know, before we get into like the specifics of what you were doing once you got involved Mm -hmm. and what the result was, I'm curious if you were aware or you're aware now how agricultural interests were viewing this controversy as it was ongoing, right? Because there were a lot of people wanting to utilize the Desert Land Entry Act Mm -hmm. to get access to federal land, um, to irrigate it, and to farm. Okay, so our interest is in this area that became the Snake River Birds Mm -hmm. of Prey National Conservation Area. And simultaneously, like as this whole controversy surrounding Swan Falls Dam was going on, there was also like all of this research going on on raptors in the area. And there was this movement to protect not just the canyon, which was already protected at that time, Mm. but also a huge section of the North Plateau, because that was what the raptors relied upon as their food source, right? Mm -hmm. And the primary opposition to protecting that area was agricultural interests that wanted to use the Desert Land Entry Act to uh, develop that area. So there was like that fight going on, right? And Mm -hmm. then simultaneously, there was this controversy going on over Swan Falls and water rights. And it's just interesting, both of those things were going on simultaneously and they were obviously influencing each other. I wonder if you were aware of that at the time. Those folks that wanted to use the Desert Land Entry Act to develop that land in the North Plateau, would that have become possible if the outcome had been different? Uh, no, uh, probably not, because what would have happened was Idaho Power Company would have had a water right for 8,400 CFS, which is essentially the entire flow of the river during the summer months right? and more. Mm-hmm. So it would would have been an effective blockade. And in fact, 
If you really want to get a flavor of how intense this debate was, Justice Jones, Jim Jones, uh, has written a book called A Little Damn Problem. And he chronicles the two years of this fight that went on after the Supreme Court decision. Immediately after the Supreme Court decision, the company and the state went separate ways along with irrigated agriculture. And that was primarily because Jim, at the time he was attorney general, he had been a staffer for Senator Lynn Jordan. So Jordan left the governor's office and went back to the Senate. And Attorney General Jim Jones was steeped in Jordan's belief that the Snake River is a working river and should be made available for economic development. And he saw a decision from the Supreme Court and the companies backing away from the traditional understanding that its water rights were subordinated as a breach of an agreement, a verbal agreement that had been reached between Governor Jordan and the company. So he took it upon himself to uh, move that battle forward. There was Senator Laird Ney and um, Representative Vard Chapman. One, uh, Laird was from Kimberly and Vard was from over in the uh, Burley area that were also actively engaged in this fight. And uh, during the 1983 session, there had been efforts to try to subordinate, legislatively subordinate the water rights, and the company fought against that, and they fought to a standstill. And after the 83 session, then several of the legislators that had supported Idaho Power Company became, were targeted uh, for defeat and actually lost their positions in the legislature because of the position they'd taken on Swan Falls. We go into the 84 session, and the battle is even more intense uh, we're drafting subordination bills as fast as Idaho Power Company is killing the subordination bills. It was really a stalemate between the company and the state. And that's when Governor Evans approached then-CEO Jim Bruce and said, listen, we've got to find a better solution, that this isn't going to work from the state standpoint. We can't have the company shutting down the entire economy. But on the other hand, we've got to find a solution that doesn't keep us at, at odds. And that's where the Swan Falls Agreement developed out of that conversation. Right. So developed out of a desire to let's resolve this compromise, meet in the middle, essentially. I wonder like what it was like for you to enter into this controversy, given very high profile. Where were you at in your career and, and what was it like to jump right into the middle of this? I graduated from uh, law school in 77 and I taught for I practiced in private practice and taught for a couple of years. So I was very early in my career. And to walk into the middle of that battle was quite eye-opening. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. Uh, it was um, it was an intense, a very intense period of, in my career where I spent time on that issue. It's kind of like today. You were either for it or you're against it, but there wasn't any middle in the debate on those issues. So uh, my job was to essentially research all this issue and. What was interesting from my perspective is, as I mentioned, I grew up in Wendell, a town just immediately east of the Thousand Springs area, and spent a lot of time in the Thousand Springs area uh, working uh, in agriculture. As I went through high school, worked on a lot of farms, and my dad was a mechanic, and we spent a lot of time working with fish farmers, which also we haven't talked about yet, but that factors into this as well. Never thought I'd spend my career going over everything that it, all the development that occurred in the area I grew up in, not knowing it was happening. So it was kind of an interesting part of my background. Yeah, for sure. So you were doing all this research, right? All mm -hmm. this background as a part of this effort to try to find a compromise, right? Be between Idaho Power and the, and the state? No, the research I was doing was I was a lead litigator. So my job was to try to figure out 
how we could recover from the decision the Supreme Court had issued because there was okay. a remand back to the district court, and uh, I was trying to establish all of the facts that show that there had been this agreement and that the company was now uh, backing away from prior commitments that had made. And so that was where my research was centered. The thing that really led to the settlement was kind of a pragmatic look at it. You know, as attorneys, we need to step back and look at things as to what you think the outcome is going to be. And each side did that. Tom Nelson, who was the power company's attorney at the time, very respected attorney, I have a lot of affinity for, even though we were on opposite sides on this issue. But and he would ultimately become a Ninth Circuit uh, judge. But he had looked at it from the company standpoint, had written a memorandum. And in the memorandum, he acknowledged that the company probably couldn't win as to the existing development that occurred. Um, looking at it, saying that, well, here the company had gone out and had agreed to hook up the pumping for these various facilities. There had been reliance by the irrigators on that. And so probably they were going to lose with regard to the existing development, but felt that there was an opportunity for them to win going forward. In other words, not allowing other uh, new future development. And frankly, that's a very good assessment where facts were at. I think we had a good case to make going forward that there had been the commitment, but the question is, could the company renege on that? And so what really prompted the settlement was we looked at what the existing development was in the Snake River at that point in time. and. The low flow that had been experienced prior to the settlement was about 4,520 CFS. It had been the low point of uh, the flow in the Swan Falls area. So looking at that, we said, okay, the state water plan called for development of the Snake River at Swan Falls down to 3,300 CFS. So most w the state could have won was to get the right to develop down to 3,300 CFS. Well, if you do the math, uh, 4,500 CFS, 3,300 CFS, 1,200 is a difference. Uh, so the compromise was, well, let's establish the minimum flow now at 3,900 CFS in the summer. And that would allow for some future development, which uh, the state needed. Uh, there was a real strong demand to do more development on the Eastern Snake Plain Aquifer. And it gave the company some protection on a base flow. That's how simple it was. <laughs> Right. So this is all this huge controversy. And I mean, yeah, it seems like the solution was split not, the baby. Yeah. Not that complicated. Right. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The split the difference was the easy part of it. But then uh, once you split the difference, you've got to put it into place. And that required a whole lot of different policy issues. Kind of another side aspect of this is that the biggest original proponent of the subordination had been the Bureau of Reclamation because it was in the process of doing the large dam development. They had bought out uh, Idaho Park Company's water rights at American Falls. They wanted to do the Hills Canyon project. They also had a proposal to do the High Mountain Sheep Dam. The idea was to extend the Columbia River project all the way up the Snake River. And in order to do that, they couldn't allow private hydropower water rights to interfere. And so they had pushed for subordination. But in the 50s, the attitude of the federal government began to shift. And so by the time we got into the 70s, the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation was no longer supporting the subordination policy. It had lost at Hell's Canyon, so it no longer had, uh, had a vested interest in that. You saw the uh, rise of the environmental movement with the Endangered Species Act and National Environmental Policy Act. So when it came time for the Swan Falls conflict, we thought that the uh, Bureau of Reclamation should be on the state side because they had supported that position in the past. They had flipped and gone to the other side. And in fact, what became one of the biggest issues 
in the Swan Falls settlement was the United States Department of Interior was taking a position opposing the settlement because of reduced flows in the Swan Falls reach. We ultimately had to have Congress approve the settlement agreement. There was a very powerful representative at the time that opposed the settlement. Senator McClure was supporting it. Federal Power Commission, uh, FERC, Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, was refusing to recognize the subordination. So we had to introduce legislation into Congress to force the uh, FERC to recognize the agreement. We were only able to get that through over the opposition of the Department of Interior with an agreement to conduct a study to see what the impacts of the future development under the Swan Falls Agreement would be on the flow in the river reach below Swan Falls Dam, which then led to claims that were made in the Snake River Basin adjudication by the Fish and Wildlife Service for in-stream flows to protect the islands in that uh, reach between the Swan Falls Dam and uh, backwaters of Brownlee Reservoir. So the compromise on the surface seems simple, but in order to actually implement that, there was... there was a, It was really difficult to implement yeah. it. And the, the idea was, and I think if you look at the uh, Swan Falls framework, it has a lot of really good ideas in it that have kind of built the foundation for water policy now in the 21st century here in Idaho, but it called for commencement of the Snake River Basin adjudication. And the reason for that was if we committed to protecting uh, a 3,900, 5,600 CFS flow at Swan Falls, we needed to be able to manage resources to, to see how that was going to happen. And one of the other things that happened as part of the settlement agreement was implementation of, or documentation, I should say, of the Milner Zebra flow. What Swan Falls did was essentially divide the Snake River into two parts. Everything above Milner and the entire flow can be developed down to zero. Well, if you do that, how do you maintain a 3,900 CFS flow at Swan Falls Dam? You have to have enough water coming out of the springs in order to sustain that 3,900 CFS in the summer months. So we needed to be able to manage the resource, but you can't manage what you can't measure. So that was the purpose of Snake River Basin Adjudication was to get a comprehensive list of all water rights in the basin so that we would have the the ability to figure out what our baseline is and then what's available for development above that. It's interesting that that didn't exist before. That there was Well, if you think about it, in western United States, the way to sort out these water disputes, you know, to get a comprehensive solution is a uh, general adjudication. That means adjudicating all water rights, including those by the federal government and the Indian tribes. The Snake River Basin adjudication is the only statewide adjudication that's been completed. Those are just very difficult cases to complete because you're going back and you're documenting what the history has been. Um, there are winners and losers when you start doing that documentation, so you get into fights, and we had some big fights in the Snake River Basin adjudication as well. And then the cost of those. Most people don't recognize that to complete the Snake River Basin adjudication was uh, for the state alone, this is not the private sector, but for the state alone, was over $92 million. It's fascinating that Idaho is the only state that has implemented that type of process, right? Mm -hmm. You talked about how important this agreement was and has become for Idaho law. Mm -hmm. Has it influenced water law beyond Idaho, though? In a way. Mm -hmm. um, Obviously, each basin is unique to itself, and you have to look at the water supply and the geographic sure. features and developments that occurred. But in terms of how to conduct a, a general adjudication, 
Idaho has become the model. In fact, when we did the closing ceremonies in 2014, we had representatives from California coming up and saying, well, how did you do this? But the real issue that we were trying to get to, and I think which become a kind of a model for the West, is historically we have always treated groundwater and uh, surface water separate because you can't see below the surface. You don't know what's there. We didn't have the technology to regulate it. And so they're intertwined in a way that you can't afford. I mean, the hydraulic connection between the two is essential to managing the river. And so our objective, and once we got the adjudication of the water rights, was to then do this conjunctive administration of surface and groundwater. Well, that's not easily done because, you know, with surface water, you can turn it off and you can see whether the senior up rivers or down rivers getting the benefit of that water. Here, you turn off uh, groundwater pumping, you're talking 10 to maybe 60 to 70 years before you see the full impact. So if you're trying to do it from a priority standpoint and regulate on that basis, what you're essentially doing is you're curtailing for past injury that occurred 20 or 30 years ago, not knowing whether it's going to be necessary in the future because the water supply may, uh, the aquifer may be recharged. And so it's this temporal problem that you have between surface and groundwater. And so Idaho has really led the way in terms of trying to sort that issue out. And uh, that was actually the second generation. Once we finished the Snake River Basin adjudication, then we spent from 20 uh, or about 2001 until, uh, well, even uh, 2016, trying to get this conjunctive management issue sorted out. So Idaho is really one state in the nation that has grappled with and got a solution in place for how to manage the surface and groundwater conjunctively. And that all inures to the benefit of everybody downriver because then we're able to know what's going to be available for uh, maintaining flows down through the Snake River. Something that's important to note here and to point out to folks is that the Swan Falls Agreement that was agreed in the mid-80s. The Swan Falls Agreement was in 1984. 1984. Mm-hmm. Um, but the impact of that, I mean, you're talking about all the things that resulted in that right up until the present yeah. time. So it's set into motion. Well, let's just talk about what it set into yeah. motion. So we had to deal with conjunctive management. We had to deal with, um, in, in the interim, uh, the Endangered Species Act came into play with regard to anadromous fish salmon and steelhead um, in order to get a resolution of that as well as the Nez Perce uh, Indian tribes claims for off-reservation hunting and fishing rights. Those all had to go through the Snake River Basin adjudication. So in 2004, we entered into what's called uh, the Snake River Water Rights Agreement, which, and this I think this is kind of the ironic point, is in 1984, four and five, when we were putting together the Swan Falls Agreement, there was contemplation that we would develop somewhere around 200,000 acres uh, more of agricultural land in the Upper Snake River Basin. When we got to the 2004 Snake River Water Rights Agreement, the issue was, are we going to remove the four lower Snake River dams, or are we going to have to do flow augmentation uh, to try to overcome the effects of the still water pools behind the, the dams? And obviously Idaho was opposed to the idea that we should have to be flushing water down the river that if the dams are the cause of the problem, they should be addressed through uh, the dams. But that became a big issue in the 1990 elections when uh, Governor Batt 
was running, and the issue was if you remove the lower four Snake River dams, Lewiston is no longer a port. So he used that as a big campaign promise. And so then once the dam removal was taken off as a state policy position, the lower Columbia River interest then began to push for more flow augmentation out of Idaho. And Nesper's tribe was advocating for that as well because of their right to hunt at all usual and custom fishing sites. And so we had to figure out a solution to that. And the 2004 Snake River Water Rights Agreement is built on the Swan Falls. What we committed to do was to continue with the base flows of 3,950, CFS, but we also have a rental program where the Bureau of Reclamation rents water to augment that in-stream flow uh, for purposes of getting incidental take permit for operation of the Bureau of Reclamation projects. And what happened out of that was we have this ability to rent water through the water bank, but if you take water out of the water bank, then you're taking away water that would be used to otherwise maybe mitigate for other impacts in the basin. So we also agreed as part of the 2000 Snake River Water Rights Agreement to allow the Bureau of Reclamation to rent up to 60,000 acre feet of natural flow. Where did it come from? Uh, the state of Idaho bought out the high lift pumping rights for the Bell Rapids project for, I think it was $26 million. That allowed us to put another 60 CFS of water back into the river that's coming down on top of the Swan Falls minimum flows. So you can't segregate these things out. They're all connected. They work together. And so you have that. You also have in the 1994 Hall Indian Water Rights Agreement is centered around the Swan Falls Agreement because it recognizes the zero minimum flow at Milner. Uh, the tribe has water in Palisades and uh, American Falls. They wanted to rent that water downstream. Well, if you rent the water downstream, once it gets past Milner, it's no longer available for reuse in the Upper Snake River Basin. So we had to sort through that and we worked out some special arrangements with the tribe for that. And then you have the conjunctive management agreement we just recently negotiated with the Upper Snake River Basin users that also integrate into it. So each one of these actions since that time has been built on the Swan Falls Agreement. So if you think about it, the Swan Falls Agreement is central to our water policies as they exist today. And everything is built around that project. Yeah, fascinating. I wonder from the perspective of, you gave a lot of interesting examples of like how the sort of maneuvering that had to happen in order to make any change or to address any additional water rights claim that had any connection with the Snake River really, and how it all relates back to what was decided in the Swan Falls Agreement. But like from the perspective of, say, an individual that maybe had an interest in developing an area as a part of the Desert Land Entry Act. Mm. How did the Swan Falls Agreement like affect an individual's ability to do that or like the process to do that? Did it make it more difficult to get access to land through that act? Did it change the, the process? Did it make it more complicated or difficult to... Well, it did. One aspect of the Swan Falls Agreement we haven't talked about, which is important, is... While we agreed to a 3,950-600 CFS uh, flow at Swan Falls, the aspect of the agreement that became most difficult to implement was, okay, if you've got water to develop, how are you going to do that? And what the Swan Falls agreement called for is that the water between, uh, for the Swan Falls Dam, uh, remember it has an 8,400 CFS water right, and we have a minimum flow now of 3,900 CFS, so the amount 
of water between that is water that was considered trust water. Anybody with a water right prior to 1984 received the benefit of full subordination. Anybody that developed a water right after the Swan Falls Agreement got what was called a trust water right, and the trust water right was you could exercise that right so long as it didn't impede the 3,900-5,600 CFS flow at Milner. And so there were criteria put in place for that development, and that's Idaho Code Section 42203C has these criteria. And the idea was is that we didn't want all of the water to be used up just willy-nilly, that there, they wanted uh, to be able to kind of structure it in a way that would maximize economic opportunity. And so there are criteria in there about trying to foster the small family farm tradition, what impact does it have on the hydropower generation if this development occurs? What's the local public interest? A number of criteria like that that you also have to go through uh, other than just filing for an application and going through the traditional criteria. There's these additional criteria you have to go through. And that became a very big point of controversy in the subsequent implementation of the agreement. The company, we had a, a second fight. We actually fought Swan Falls twice. Once when the, once we got to the settlement in 1985, and then the second one was in 2006 when we were trying to decree the water rights. And the company had filed its water rights in the Snake River Basin adjudication without acknowledging that those rights were subordinated to uh, this future development that was occurring, uh, the trust water rights. They had basically argued that uh, it was 3,900 straight across the board and no other qualifications to that. Attorney General Lawrence Wasden ended up having to file a competing claim for a transfer of the water rights because the whole debate in Swan Falls was who was going to be the water master for the river. That was the issue. And the company wanted to retain its ability to, to control it through its water rights. Attorney General Jim Jones was adamantly opposed to it. And just before the agreement was signed, it looked like it was going to fall apart. But then an attorney from eastern Idaho, Ray Rigby, who was advising Governor Evans, suggested, well, let's put the water above 3,900 CFS in trust. So it's this difference between 3,900 and 8,400 8, CFS. And so they agreed that that was going to be the, the basis because the state would then be in control of the water right, but we could dole it out under these statutes by using the, the trust provisions. Well, unfortunately, uh, a number of years expired between when we finally got around to adjudicating the water rights for uh, the Swan Falls Dam, and the company filed its water rights for 8,400 CFS without any recognition of the trust rights. As that was happening, Attorney General Wasden, we tried to talk to the company to convince them to, to recognize the agreement as it had been uh, written. They wouldn't do that. So he filed an application with the Department of Water Resources for a transfer of the company's water rights above 3,900 CFS. And all heck broke loose. <laughs> um, and so we went through another round of fighting. Uh, we were able to get a decision from the SRBA District Court that recognized that, in fact, the company had agreed as part of the settlement to the trust. Now, the interesting aspect of this is if you look at the Swan Falls Agreement, there's only one paragraph, paragraph four, that even makes mention of the trust. So the whole concept of how this trust was going to work had never been sorted out. And why is that? Because, you know, once you got the settlement agreement in place, everybody moved on, as is typical with these things, moved on and started working on other issues. And then we had to come back and revisit it. 
But once we got uh, Judge Melanson's decision saying that the company had, in fact, agreed to subordinate uh, its water rights above uh, 3,900 CFS to future development, that then precipitated the second round of uh, settlement discussions. And I think it's uh, the 2009 uh, Snake River Water Rights Reaffirmation Agreement in which we agreed that the company's water rights would be held by the state. So the state holds these hydropower water rights in trust for the company and the citizens of the state, and we have the ability through the trust to impose these additional conditions on the development of the water right. To some extent, the recent settlement and the conjunctive management issue kind of eclipses that aspect of the agreement because uh, let's go back and now integrate the other player in this. When the Swan Falls Agreement was resolved, that was a resolution between the power company and the state over the hydropower water rights. And so basically what the company has agreed to do is that it won't exercise, well, because the state holds the water rights, it can't, but the, the rights won't be exercised in a way to prevent upstream development. What wasn't resolved as part of the Swan Falls Agreement was the water rights of uh, the fish producers down in the Hickman Valley. So you have one of the world's premier trout production areas down there. The water comes out of the Thousand Springs area at 58 degrees. Uh, tremendous volume of fish farming that occurred in that area. Well, that fish farming started about the same time as the groundwater pumping started. And so most of the fish water rights were developed based upon the elevated spring flows of the Thousand Springs without any subordination provisions. Again, just like Swan Falls, though, the thought was is that these were wastewater rights because the water is coming out of the aquifer and the senior can always recapture and use the water that they're not otherwise using. So they were thought of as being wastewater rights. And the state water plan specifically acknowledged that while they had a, a right to use the water, that they might have to use an alternative means of diversion in order to get the water because as your elevation in the aquifer goes down, then uh, the hydraulic head that's coming out of the Thousand Springs reduces and you have less water coming out. Well, over time, as the spring flows began to decline, specifically with the groundwater development that was authorized under the Swan Falls Agreement, then the fish farmers become impacted. And then we get into the adjudication, and there gets to be a fight over whether these water rights are senior to the uh, junior groundwater pumping rights. And the argument was made that the Swan Falls Agreement resolved that dispute, and the SRBA district court said no, it didn't resolve that, which then led to this effort to resolve the conjunctive management issues. The dilemma you have with fish farming, though, is that it relies, in terms of the amount of water it gets out uh, to, to use for production, relies on the hydraulic head out of the aquifer. So unless you curtail all that groundwater pumping, you're not going to be able to restore those spring flows. And this was about 2005 when this really uh, came to a head. And so delivery calls were made with the director to curtail the groundwater pumping. Director Dreyer at the time issued an order finding that there was material injury occurring to those senior water rights and proposed a curtailment of water rights to over 100,000 acres of land. Well, you can see the economic impact of that. That caused an immediate crisis. And I was directed to try to find a solution to that problem. And what we ultimately looked at was there were two big uh, fish producers, Clear Springs, world-renowned fish producing company, and then the Clear Lakes, owning a number of hatcheries up and down the river. There was a third production company there as well that owned Pristine Springs. 
Um, let me stop and give it a little geographic location. So we have Pristine Springs, which is located, uh, Pristine Springs and Blue Lakes Hatcheries. Those are two located right below the Prine Bridge as you go into Twin Falls. They're adjacent to one another and they're diverting water out of the same source. Um, so that was one of the delivery calls we had. And then the other delivery call was the Clear Springs delivery call, which is downriver more towards the Buell area where the Clear Springs hatchery is at. And then adjacent, right adjacent to the Clear Springs hatchery is Clear Lakes hatchery. The Clear Lakes hatchery and Blue Lakes were both owned by the same entity, the Hardy family. Both of those delivery calls were going on at the same time. We were looking at substantial curtailments in the Thousand Springs area. So we looked at it and we said, this doesn't make sense. You know, if you're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars of damages to the economy, if we can't figure out a solution. So we approached both Blue Lakes and Pristine Springs, the owners of those two facilities, and said, are either one of you willing to sell your rights? And we ultimately were able to convince Pristine Springs to sell, and they obviously wanted an elevated price for that. It was $26 million. But by acquiring that facility, we were able to take part of the water that was used for Pristine Springs to satisfy the Blue Lakes delivery call. The way we paid for that was, I think, rather innovative in that we had the groundwater users who were looking at, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of damages. They would pay $11 million of the $26 million price tag to get access to that 10 CFS to provide to Clear Lakes to avoid the delivery call. And uh, the city of Twin Falls at the same time was looking at water quality problems. They have some arsenic issues down there and so they needed to either develop a water treatment plant or find water to mix with their water supply to deal with that issue. And they were also looking for water for future development and so they agreed to buy the other fresh water out of that which was for $10 million and then the state paid $5 million for the facility itself. And what we did is we turned around and rented the facility right back to the owners of Pristine Springs. And so what you did is we reset the table to where the water supply met the needs in that basin. Once that occurred, it created a dynamic which then led the groundwater users to saying, well, the only way we're going to solve these fish production rights is a buyout. And so they bought out the Clear Lakes hatchery, conveyed that over to Clear Springs to solve that delivery call. And so basically we've reset the water supplies out of the springs to a sustainable level. But that didn't solve the other problem, which was the uh, senior surface water users, Twin Falls, Northside, Minidoka, Burley, they were also experiencing depleted flows because the springs in the American Falls reach were, were declining. You have two agriculture interests that are equally balanced. And so politically that was not going to be an outcome that you could get to money that was too great. So it led to Speaker Betke entered the fray, and he, along with myself and Matt Weaver, facilitated negotiations between the two surface water users to enter into a settlement agreement. What we're trying to do is to restore the elevation of the aquifer to, I think it's 1991 and 2001, an average of that level. That'll bring the spring flows up to a higher level, which will also help meet the Swan Falls Agreement. So that's another aspect of how they all play together. Wow, it's, a, it's amazing how the layers of this and the complexity, the question that popped into my mind is, you know, you were talking about the, the agricultural interests mm-hmm. and the fact that agricultural interests that are using the groundwater were able to buy out, you know, some of the interests uh, from the fish production mm-hmm. companies. It struck me that like, oh, I think a lot of people when they think of agricultural interests, they're thinking of like, oh, some individual farmer or a group of small individual Mm -hmm. farmers, but that's probably not who we're talking about. We're talking about like 
probably massive agricultural companies. I mean, are we talking about like no, Simplot scale agriculture? You're, you're really talking about individual farmers. Really? Because think about it in terms of groundwater, everybody has their own well. Mm-hmm. Individually, none of them have had the ability to uh, deal with the problem. You know, if they if they had to work individually on it. So what it led to was the creation of groundwater districts where all of these individual farmers now are under one groundwater district. And so collectively, they were able to be able to solve the problem individually that they couldn't. I think the Twin Falls Times News had probably the best headline I saw out of this, all, this whole thing is he said, this was really enlightened self-interest. So they needed to come together because individually they would die, but collectively they could find a solution. And so what you're really doing is you're not putting anybody out of production. What you're really doing is you're re allocating the water supply to a sustainable level for both the fish farmers and for the agricultural interests. But what it did do, and I think it comes back to what you've been asking me about, is it further curtailed the opportunity for future development because now if they're if they're going to try to get these groundwater levels back up, you don't want more development occurring that's going to erode that base. So as a practical matter, what we've done is we've shifted from the idea of developing in 1984 a 200,000 acres back to trying to sustain the base that we have today. You're right. That's a really key point, right, is that 1984, the idea was that there could still be a significant amount of additional development, and the way that it's played out has resulted in like just solidifying the existing claims, right? Well, well existing only existing as of 2011, because there was some development that occurred in there. Sure. But uh, what's really happening is, if you think about it, the cost of that development is now being internalized back to those groundwater users that are enjoying the benefit of it. The ironic thing of this is that at the time of the Swan Falls Agreement, one of the proposals was that any trust water right that would be developed would have to pay into a fund to to address these issues. Well, that met with total uh, opposition from the agricultural community but if we had developed that fund back at the point in time in the agreement put together, you would have had sufficient monies to actually resolve the problem. You just can't deal with some of these issues until you get to crisis. And so at the end, we ended up with the same solution, but in a less cost-effective way of getting there. Right. Fascinating. Um, to come back to like the specific impact that all this was having on the area that is now the Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area. It's clear to me now this is ongoing and that even though the Swan Falls Agreement occurred in 1984, that lots of other things that happened in the decades previous had an effect Mm -hmm. on that. But I wonder if you were aware at that time of the interactions that were playing out within that specific area, the specific opposition of agricultural interests because of their desire to gain access to the lands on the northern plateau of what would become this national conservation area. Was that something on your radar at all? Or was this whole issue too big picture for you or any of the folks dealing with all of these water rights issues all across southern Idaho? Oh, certainly we were aware of it. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, at least at a 60,000-foot level. We didn't get down to the granular level. Sure, but sure. you could see what was going to be the consequences of these decisions. And I think that's probably the one thing that I may have contributed to the process is that by being there throughout the entire debate, I could see the various opportunities for conflict and interaction. And so what we were always trying to do was to manage to 
to look at it not in a two-dimensional way, but in three or four-dimensional ways to make sure that we were looking at the unintended consequences and, and taking those into account so that we didn't recreate the problem. Our idea was we were trying to get to a solution. If you can think about it, when I walked into the office, I had a file probably, I wouldn't think it's more than two to three linear feet of documents related to this issue. We have millions of documents related to this issue now. Literally, what we had to do is go back and reconstruct the entire history of the basin and then try to implement that and make sure it was reflected in uh, the state water plan. So if you look at the state water plan today versus when it was back in the 80s, you'll see a completely different thing. And what it tries to do is document each step of this process and how these various things interplay with one another. What was the reaction to that specific interest group to the Swan Falls Agreement? Well, they were they were certainly concerned about it, but they saw, I think it was kind of a reluctant acceptance because if we had gone forward with litigation and we'd lost, there would have been nothing. With it, there was an opportunity. I think that's probably the reluctant acceptance is probably the best description of it. Right. I guess that makes sense. So I think there's like this perspective, and we've been told by a few of the folks that that we've interviewed who don't have specific knowledge of all the details of this one Mm. falls agreement, all the impacts on water law that you've been talking about. But now hearing the full story from you, I think probably what they were referencing was the reaction of folks who had specific agricultural interests in that area, what Mm. would become this national conservation area, was their reaction to the Idaho Supreme Court case that gave Idaho power those rights. That would be my suspicion Mm -hmm. as to what they're referencing because, again, without living it, it's hard to appreciate just how intense that fight was. Their interests were very active in a coalition that uh, Attorney General Jim Jones put together, represented primarily by Bill Ringert, a former state senator and very influential water attorney. And he actually has ownership interests down in that area. So they were very active participants. And in fact, in the litigation of the Swan Falls case itself, uh, Grindstone Butte, one of those entities that I can think of top of my head, was involved in that litigation and was opposing the efforts by the company and environmental groups to get an unsubordinated water right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then I also wonder, because it strikes me that there's a connection here between what happened in 1980 with the administrative withdrawal of that mm-hmm. area, you know, by Cecil Andrus as he was, mm-hmm. you know, in the lame duck session, but like before uh, the Reagan administration took over, he did this very controversial administrative with- withdrawal. And then immediately there were a number of lawsuits mm-hmm. um, regarding that withdrawal, which the main opposition to that action was the agricultural interest. Certainly. Right? They, they would be perceiving that as creating the possibility for Federal Reserve water rights, which ended up proving not to be true. The federal government came in and asserted those water rights for the Deerfield Wildlife Refuge. And that was an intensely uh, debated issue throughout the Snake River Basin Education. And uh, we had to go all the way to the Supreme Court to get a decision finding there was no reserve water right for that particular area. So there was, it was a big debate. (laughs) (laughs) Explain the reserve water right for... Okay. Well, what happens is when the federal government sets aside land Mm -hmm. for a specific federal purpose, if water is necessary to achieve the purpose of the reservation, then... Uh, there is the possibility of having what's called an implied reserved water right. If Congress didn't address it, 
then uh, the court would imply a reserved water right sufficient to achieve the purpose for which the reservation was created. So in Deer Flat, what the islands are between the Swan Falls Dam and backwaters of Brownlee Reservoir is a migratory bird refuge. And so that's where geese nest. And the allegation was made by the Fish and Wildlife Service was made that they needed to have flows of in excess of 17,000. Think about that. Twice what the uh, company's water rights were to protect the birds from predation by coyotes. Kind of an interesting aspect of this is we prepared for litigation on that. We had to figure out, well, could coyotes really get to the islands? And so we hired some wildlife biologists and we radio collared the predator animals in the area and never saw a problem with coyotes. But what we did see a problem with was raccoons. And the way we figured that out is we put dummy nests out on the islands with infrared cameras that could sense when they were reaching into the nest. And we got pictures of them taking these dummy eggs out of the nest. <laughs> but, uh, and then we also have pictures of the raccoons swimming uh, to the islands in, on, in flows in excess of 17,000 CFS. So the question is, did you really need a flow to keep the raccoons or were the raccoons going to get there anyway? But we never ended up having to use that evidence because we were able to argue that the whole idea of having a refuge there with these kind of flows would completely defeat the Minidoka project, which was upstream. That was a Bureau of Reclamation project. If you had to have those flows, you couldn't store water upstream. And so the uh, Fish and Wildlife Refuge was an overlay over the Reclamation project, and that's what the Supreme Court only found was that uh, the refuge was a secondary, not a primary purpose, and so therefore no reserved water right. But I think where we're at today is we've We've uh, addressed those historic problems, not that we won't have them in the future. Water, by its very nature, is going to change over time, and our interests and demands on it are going to change. What we hopefully have put in place is a floor, you know, that we've resolved the past conflicts so that we're not fighting about what was intended, but rather what do we want in terms of future management options. Mm -hmm. And so we no longer have to deal with Federal Reserve water rights. Those have been determined. We don't have to deal, deal with what the minimum flow is. That's been determined. And so we know what's available in the river to develop, and then we have to make decisions about that. Uh, even today, it's continuing to evolve because you've got the city of uh, Mountain Home that's looking at depleted aquifers in that area, and they're looking for a water supply. So the Water Resource Board is looking at constructing a pipeline from the backwaters of uh, CJ Strike to bring water up into uh, the Mountain Home area. And that'll obviously create controversy about, well, is that the best use of trust water? What impacts does it have on the hydropower base? Those kind of things will have to get sorted mm -hmm. out. Mm -hmm. I do want to talk a little bit about implications for the future and touch on some of the things you just mentioned. But like first, the process through which and the history of how this national conservation area that we're specifically interested in was set aside. And when you were talking about the reserve water rights, was that in response to, because the area, there was the administrative withdrawal that mm -hmm. protected the area on a temporary basis in 1980, but then in 1993 was the actual mm -hmm. act in Congress that established it as a national conservation area. So like, was it at that point that controversy over the reserve water rights played out? Or no, it started much earlier in time. It goes back to the original decision from the Supreme Court and where the Fish and Wildlife Service opposed the implementation of the settlement agreement because they were afraid that it would have impacts on the Migratory Wildlife Refuge. So that's where the fight started. And Congress mandated certain studies to be done, and, and the Fish and Wildlife Service tried to use those studies for the purpose of establishing a reserved water right for the 
refuge islands. So the area that you're interested in really didn't play a major role in that fight. Right. That was a separate kind of mm -hmm. a thing. Okay. Right. Okay. You sort of explained that from the perspective of somebody that wants to develop this area that has been protected but on a temporary basis mm -hmm. so it's not permanent you know if you want to develop that area for agriculture and you want to get access to some of the water the idaho state supreme court initially rules in favor of idaho power and you know you're thinking like oh okay well if that stands like i'm never going to get access right, right? Um, and then the swan falls agreement takes place 1984 and as you said from the perspective of somebody in that situation you would think like oh maybe there's a chance right because there mm -hmm. is you know it does allow for some additional development was there still really active opposition like were there still people thinking that they could get access to water and develop that area like right up until the area was ultimately protected through an act of congress in 1993 well I'm certain there was I don't know I can't give you a specific example sure sure, but... sure. You know, once that water became available, anybody that had an idea thought there was an opportunity. Right. We've been talking about all these changes that have taken place, mm -hmm. mainly as a result of, like, developments and people wanting to use water from the Snake River Plain in a variety of different ways. Mm -hmm. um, and it's all constantly changing. New technology changes the formula. And so you're constantly having to, like, adapt this and relitigate certain aspects of, of what happened. Um, but, of course, looking into the future, it's pretty easy to imagine a scenario where those changes are not just continuing to happen, but happening more rapidly and, and more dramatically, principally because of changes in climate. You talked about how unique this is mm. in our state and that other states don't have the same degree of agreement on water rights issues or the same systems in place to manage these difficult decisions. In this area, because of all this, are we better set up to deal with the changes that are coming? I think we are because we're not going to be fighting over the past. We're going to be fighting over the future. Sure. Uh, that alone is a big thing. The second thing is as a result of having to do all of this work, we have much better technology and understanding of the resource. So we're going to be able to look to that. And then another component is adaptive management. Once you establish a minimum flow of 395600 CFS and a zero flow at Milner, you've got to be managing the aquifer to provide a substantial part of that flow. One of the things that is being worked on right now is an adaptive management plan to say, okay, what happens if uh, our flows change? What actions are we going to take to uh, make sure that we meet uh, the policy objectives that have been implemented through the Swan Falls Agreement? So I think that's the big thing that came out of this is not only having that base, but also having the resources to look at it from an adaptive standpoint and say, okay, now with these changes, what are we going to have to do in order to make sure that we can sustain the development the way we have envisioned it occurring. So this might just be a, a detail in, in some of the stuff that, that you've already explained that I missed, right? But there's the minimum flow requirement, mm -hmm. um, but the existing water rights before the agreement can't be touched, right? That's correct. So what happens if those existing rights don't change, but due to other external factors, like say a changing climate, um, you no longer have that minimum flow. Well, uh, two things to say to that. One is the Swan Falls Agreement made it clear that um, the 3900 is only protected 
to the extent it can be sustained without affecting the existing uses. So okay. the uses prior to 85, if they draw the river down below 3,900 CFS, they are protected rights and can't be affected. That's the theoretical, and that's the problem. We spend a lot of time thinking about the theoretical. The reality is that those rights haven't and didn't reduce the river below 4,520 CFS. That was the amount that was in existence at the time. So really what we're talking about is the development since that period of time, and we do have uh, contingencies in these rights saying that if uh, the trust water rights cause a flow to go below 3,900 CFS, they're subject to curtailment. So what does that mean? That means those water users have an incentive to work with the state to find a solution that avoids that occurrence. And so that's why you have this adaptive management. You've got things going on in the Eastern Snake Plain Aquifer right now, for instance, of trying to restore the amount of storage that used to go onto the aquifer for recharge of the aquifer. So we've got a major recharge program going on. We've got groundwater diversions to to surface water diversions. So those are the kind of things that you can do to, to adapt and make sure that you're sustaining the flows that you've committed to at uh, Thousand Springs. And that adaptive management program, I think, is really the future. People want certainty with regard to water, but the only certainty you can have is a process. Inevitably, it's a dynamic system that's going to change. And so you've got to adapt to those changes. And uh, we've at least got a process for having those conversations and figuring out how to solve them. So I think that's where Idaho's probably in a better position than many other states. Oftentimes with water issues, you don't deal with them until you have a crisis. And, uh, you know, it's always been my philosophy, don't let a good crisis go to waste. You know, try to solve uh, problems in the future. And I think that's what we did. I wonder, just for context, if you could talk about water issues going on in other states, you know, like specifically here in the West, hear a lot about water issues in California as sort of a point of comparison, you know, to show like, here's how this system works in Idaho. It's really complicated, but there is a system, you know, how does it work in California or some other state and how different is the, the process? Well, let's, let's take California because I think, you know, everybody would think, well, California ought to be on the leading edge of this. California still regulates groundwater separate from surface water. And you're having significant uh, changes in the surface water flows in California. And what people are doing is they're mining their aquifers. And they still, they passed some statutes a couple years ago trying to begin thinking about how to deal with conjunctive management. But But the political forces are such that they're a long ways behind where Idaho is at. And in fact, as I suggested to you earlier, they came up to see what we were doing because they're trying to figure out how to how to do with it because you got these economic interests that really kind of um, preclude creative thinking. Uh, we tend to think in terms of, I want to protect what I've got as opposed to thinking about this as a shared resource. If you think about it, uh, water is a commons uh, and under the tragedy of the commons, uh, what happens is you just continue to use it unless you have some sort of regulatory mechanism that controls it. Idaho put in place that regulatory mechanism. California doesn't have it. Let's take the Colorado River as another example. When Congress apportioned that water, that was a political solution, not a, a determination of rights. It was a political solution of allocation of water. They allocated the water at a period of time when the uh, hydrologic cycle was at its maximum. And so they've overappropriated that system multiple times. And right now they're just trying to figure out how to sort out between the states what they're doing. So aside from Colorado, I think Idaho is probably viewed in most of the United States as one of the leaders in terms of water resource management. A future potential project of, of the city of Mountain Home mm -hmm. worried about their water supply. And so when I think of 
sort of things that tax the system or, or drain the aquifer like farming is one of those things but when you think of the growing population in the Treasure Valley and, and I'm, I don't know the population figures for Mountain Home but I'm sure it's increasing as well like how much of a draw or a pull would Mountain Home be on that is that a big problem that you see in the future or is that something that is just one of many smaller to medium-sized problems that this area will face well, I see it more as a medium-sized problem because Mountain Home is growing. The reason I say it's a medium-sized problem is because those aquifers are being depleted, so there's got to be something done with that. But it's not out of the realm of possibility to find solutions to that, and this pipeline that the board is looking at has that option. Now, there's a consequence to that. you got to think about it. Is if you're going to pull that water out of the Snake River, what does that do to the flow going through Swan Falls? And so we've got to be thinking about that and how do you manage that so you don't create if you've done everything over the Eastern Snake Plain Aquifer to get the flows up, that you're not thereby then creating another conflict downstream. But if we look at it beyond just a single dimension and we look at it as, okay, what are the consequences of this particular decision and build that into our thinking of the way we analyze a resource, then we should be able to avoid those problems. Well, I think we really touched on what I, what I consider the most important issue, and that is to change our way of thinking about this resource. We've got to look at it as a common, we've got to look at it as a shared resource, and we've got to think about it in an enlightened self-interest way. I mean, we have a lot of demands for this resource. Idaho is fortunate that we have good water supply. It's, just, it's a management issue here, whereas it's a crisis issue in some other places because you just don't have water supply to replace it. For instance, I was just reading here recently, the city of El Paso is now exploring trying to uh, take their wastewater and treat it for drinking water standards because there's just no other water supply available. We have an opportunity to manage. That's great. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Well, thanks a lot sure. for taking the time to chat with us. It was very informative. This is very tangential, but we, we've talked about ways to, to sort of reduce our pressure on the water system. And one thing that has come up is the conversion of uh, flood irrigation to center pivot irrigation and that reduces the overall drain on the system but right. is that a is that a big factor like if you look at that across the state it's a huge factor and one person's conservation is another person's water supply right and you know think about it and from 19 from the early 1900s to about 1950 we increased the elevation of the Eastern Snake Plain Aquifer by 60 feet over an 11,000 square mile area. That's the equivalent of Lake Erie. Yeah, that's a big, that's a big uh, yeah. addition. And since then, we've converted sprinkler irrigation. Well, we used to divert as much as 14 acre feet per acre up in the Egan Bench area. You do, uh, the amount of return flow that you're having into the aquifer has been reduced substantially. It's one of the biggest factors for why we have the problem. So why are they converting the sprinkler? A lot of a lot of people will say, well, that's great conservation. We've got everybody to do that. Well, in fact, what we're doing is we're creating our own problem by curtailing that kind of diversion. Now, you can debate the policies. I'm not taking a position on it. I'm just saying that the consequence of that is that you're going to cause the spring flows to go lower. So you you got to think about, okay, is that really the kind of conservation we want, or is there a better conservation that we can do? Yeah, and a sort of side issue to that is as we've gotten rid of flood irrigation, uh, people that study migratory birds have noticed that there's less wetlands for stopover. So during these critical migratory periods when 
when animals are, are severely taxed and they're looking for a safe place to forage and, mm -hmm. and spend the night, um, that we've reduced that flooded pasture area. Um, so what seems like a great conservation idea for water conservation has been not a great idea for migratory bird conservation, but well, all those things are intertwined. And let me give you an example of that where I grew up. I, when I, in Wendell area, we used to be one of the premier pheasant hunting areas. You know, you could go out and you could find pheasants anywhere. In fact, my grandfather, when he was down there, uh, Bing Crosby used to come out there and hunt pheasants. <laughs> you can't find pheasants down there now because so many of the ditches have gone away and you don't have that kind of cover. Right. So that's, that's well, yeah, the thing you, is... You get rid of all those small lateral canals and mm -hmm. all the vegetation that would grow up on the side, which yep. is great. Yeah, interesting. So not only sort of waterfowl, but also upland game bird habitat. Right. So we tend to, to, to latch on to the easiest idea, you know, like, oh, they're diverting 14 acre feet per acre, that's horrible. Well, okay, that's the first impression, but then you ask yourself, well, if we're going to manage the river this way, isn't that a good way to, to keep it there? So yeah, there's just no easy solution to all this. Water debates will go on forever. The, the only thing you can do is hope to settle it for a 20-year horizon, I think, is about as long as you can think out. And yes. then, well, think about it between Swan Falls and 2006. In that period of time, our thinking about development completely flipped. That was Clive Strong former Deputy Attorney General for the state of Idaho. If you'd like to learn more about this oral history project, more information can be found at birdsofpreyncapartnership.org slash dedication point. Dedication Point is a production of the Birds of Prey NCA Partnership in association with the Bureau of Land Management, the Wildlands Collective, and the Archives of Falconry. Today's episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by The Great Turtle. Oh, my God.